the bank came and said, hey, we want all of our credit facilities your organization has out paid in 30 days. We're coming after the collateral. And, and the collateral was my home. Mm. Uh, but seven, seven days later, as I was processing that, uh, my finance guy called me and, and uh, I thought he was kidding. Uh, he said, hey, there's somebody here from the IRS uh, to see you. And uh, she's not happy, and you need to come in here right now. Th right? Those are, those are not the words anyone wants to hear. <laughs> There's somebody yeah. from the IRS here to see you. Yeah, let me tell you, it's, it, it'll definitely cure constipation. That's for sure, right? <laughs> Von Thurman built a thriving IT service business. Suddenly, his two biggest clients got acquired and canceled their contracts, which comprised 60% of his revenue. As the company struggled, the other shoe dropped. The bank, the landlord, vendors, even the electric company threatened to shut down his business. It got worse. The IRS called. With four kids to support, another on the way, a mortgage, car payments, and very little left in the bank, he first tried to hide his fears from his family and co-workers. But that didn't last. He had to think through his next steps carefully. In this episode, Vaughn unpacks the gripping story of how he kept creditors and the IRS at bay, got out of debt, and eventually built his company through scrappy, creative ways to increase cash flow and sales. The techniques that he shares saved his business, which he eventually sold for millions of dollars, creating a launchpad for his new company, High Gear Software. Listen and learn unique insights that will help you grow or save your business. Okay, welcome to the morebusiness.com podcast. Our goal is to help entrepreneurs become millionaires, and I'm very excited today to welcome Vaughn Thurman. Uh, Vaughn has got an incredible story about how he was almost put out of business and boy, just on the brink of bankruptcy and, and just really turned things around. And as we know, life is not always a straight path to success. Uh, there are a lot of ups and downs. So Vaughn, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Raj. It's my pleasure to be with you today and to have the opportunity to uh, share my story with other entrepreneurs. Yeah, I think a lot of people will be able to relate to this. And uh, and if you haven't experienced uh, the ups and downs yet, boy, you're going to go for a ride with this story uh, as Vaughn and I were talking as we prepared for this conversation. So Vaughn, let's let's start from the beginning, like, you know, several years ago. Now, I think it must be like 10, 15 years ago now, you were running an IT services company, a managed service provider. Um, why don't you share a little bit about how that was going and then what happened? Yeah, you bet. Well, uh, first of all, I, I think, you know, you see a need, you fill a need, you build a business, the market responds, and you get really excited. That's, that's what an entrepreneur hopes for. And I had a couple of years of that. I can dig in for five years. We were growing by 50% a year. I was, you know, a, a broke kid uh, with nobody backing me. And, uh, but it just seemed like the world was my oyster. Everything we took on was getting better. We had a data center. We were picking up big customers. We were investing. We started getting some early investors now because of all the progress we were making. And, and just in a nutshell, uh, two of our largest clients represented 60% of our revenue between the two of them. And they got acquired within 22 days of each other. Uh, one came in and said, within 90 days, we're going to be done with you and your team. Uh, the other one came in while we were dealing with that shock and said, we're done today. We got acquired. The paperwork got signed yesterday. We need the keys. You're done. And we had just expanded. I had uh, you know, gotten myself seven figures in debt, uh, growing the business, which didn't seem frightening at all because everything was up and we were just going to be able to 
make those payments easily out of the continued growth and everything going in the right direction. Uh, but things began to turn uh, in, in a very difficult way. We struggled to try to replace that revenue that year and, and great success we did. Uh, but the long and short of it is we lost our shirts uh, trying to get that done. I had a small business I was beginning to bring up in the background and this growing largest in, in the area managed services provider uh, that we were uh, running. And, and, and so by the time I got to the end of the year, the bank came and took a look at how we had performed and it was frightening. Uh, it's about Halloween now as we're recording this. And, mm -hmm. and it was like a Halloween story for them to look at my financials. They thought this guy's not going to make it. Well, and, Vaughn, you uh, said, I mean, like, it's a really interesting point, though. A lot of companies, I think, just build their businesses, especially IT companies. Uh, uh, I've spoken to companies that just say, no, well, yeah, I don't lose customers. I, when they're with me, they stay with me for 10, 15 years. And the one thing is, is that if your customers are other businesses, there's that risk that they're going to get acquired. And when that happens, usually if there's somebody that, that the buyer is already using, your services become redundant and they replace you. And yeah. that's an, an unfortunate reality. And wow, to go from having a nice business to losing 60% of your business in 90 days, that's a big thing to overcome. So how did you so how did you actually build back some of that client base? Well, we took on some very expensive marketing. We hired additional sales staff. And, and like I said, we did succeed in replacing the revenue by the end of the year. Uh, but I'd gone from being, you know, deep in debt to, to deeply mired in debt by the end of the year because I was living out of lines of credit. And, and the thing that I didn't know, I, I knew we had uh, fallen a quarter behind on payroll taxes that year. And I knew that that was a risk, but it was a manageable risk. And my finance leader uh, didn't really understand the potential ramifications there and thought if one quarter and some penalties is buying us additional cash to pay the rent, well, what's two quarters? Mm. And so the reality is, is we came into 2007 before most of the other people uh, in the marketplace were feeling the pain of the late 07 and 08 downturn. Uh, we got punched in the gut hard. The bank came and said, hey, we want all of our credit facilities your organization has out paid in 30 days. We're coming after the collateral and, and the collateral was my home. Oh, right. Yeah. So, so I, I had uh, four kids, a fifth on the way. Uh, and uh, you know, the, the contemplation of being on the street was, was a lot, uh, mm. but seven, seven days later, as I was processing that uh, my finance guy called me and, and uh, I thought he was kidding. Uh, he said, hey, there's somebody here from the IRS uh, to see you, and uh, she's not happy, and you need to come in here right now. Th right? Those, are, those are not the words anyone wants to hear. <laughs> there's somebody yeah. from the IRS here to see you. Yeah, let me tell you, it's, it, it'll definitely cure constipation, that's for sure, right? <laughs> oh, uh, forgive God. me for a moment. My phone keeps going off. Yeah, that is, a, that is a tough uh, pill to swallow, especially when you're – you're not expecting anything like that. And next thing you know, you know, you're, you think you're all right, I'm going to manage this. There's a little bit of trouble. I'm going to manage this. And then it just keeps getting worse. That is hard to deal with. Right. And so, you know, we're, we're basically in a situation to kind of, you know, put it all together here over the course of about a year, it's been getting harder and harder to keep our vendors paid, to keep the lights on, to keep the rent paid. Uh, the bank has now said, hey, we're making it worse. We're coming for all of our facilities in 30 days. The IRS, and it was it was true. He wasn't kidding. I got in there and we had an agent in the office saying, you're under public trust investigation for misappropriating 
payroll tax money. And, and I, you know, I went home that night feeling like my world was collapsing. I mean, you, you know, you got you, you to gotta contemplate that uh, 10, 11 months earlier, I thought the world was my oyster and, and everything I was touching was turning to gold. And here at this point, I'm considering, uh, you know, losing my home. I'm, I'm under a public trust investigation, potentially. And I got home. It was, it was a Friday night. It was one of my uh, son's birthdays. And I remember uh, more succinctly, more, more, uh, you know, more cogently than, than um, many things, uh, trying to keep my act together, trying to be dad, trying to keep the game face on, right? And, and I was having trouble doing it. My mind was somewhere else. I was contemplating uh, very heavy things. And I tried to sneak out uh, with a bag of trash to just be able to get, you know, to stand outside by myself for a couple of minutes. And I wasn't sure if I was struggling with trying not to weep or if I wanted to go be alone so that I could. But my mother-in-law, who was uh, very perceptive and annoying like most mother-in-laws are, uh, saw that I was stressed out, couldn't figure out what was going on and followed me out. And she said, what's going on with you? I can see you're really struggling, you know? And I'm like, look, you, you don't want to know what's going on with me. It's fine. Just go in and enjoy the party. And she pressed me and I kind of had my Colonel Nathan R. Jessup moment, you know, like a few good men. I was like, look, you can't handle the truth. Right. <laughs> and uh, and and she goes, just tell me you'll feel better. And my mother-in-law has an answer for everything. Right. And I love her to death. Right? But she has an answer for everything. And uh, I, so I laid it out on her in, in about two sentences. I said, look, the reality is the bank is coming for a lot of money that I don't have. And if it doesn't get resolved, we may be living in your basement. And she kind of looked like she was beginning to take on some of my stress. And she goes, well, whatever we have to do, we're family, right? Mm. And I said, and I may not be coming with my family because the IRS came to the office today and said they're investigating me because we're behind on payroll taxes more than I even knew. And, you know, all the color ran away from her face and she had no answer. And she was right. I did feel better for a little moment there. I thought, <laughs> oh, that's, that's great. you know, uh -huh. uh, but but I've gotten through it. And I have to say, I fit that old adage that, you know, behind every successful man is an astounded mother-in-law. <laughs> right. She, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if either of us really saw it coming, but but, you know, it, it was it was really the pinnacle of difficulty for me in that I thought, you know, this is the foreshadowing of what I'm going to have to deal with with everybody. Everybody I know, I'm going to have to tell them how badly I'm failing. And and there's no worse fear for a proud entrepreneur than to have to go describe to everyone. And in fact, our nature, human nature is to do everything we possibly can to avoid letting that happen. And, and sometimes that'll cause us to ride too close to the ledge, uh, you know, or risk our health and sanity uh, trying to figure out how to keep something from happening that may be unavoidable. And and like I said, mine is ultimately a good story. I got through it. I sold the business very successfully and moved on to that small business that I'd been growing, you know, underneath of it with a, a seven-figure investment I was able to make in that after, you know, largely getting out of debt and covering all kinds of things. But, uh, but that's really that pinnacle moment where a business had been growing like crazy. My confidence got a hold of me. I was so confident in myself and our ability to grow the company that I took wild risks. Those risks were multiplied by the fact that I wasn't paying attention to the details of how every part of the business was running. And all of a sudden, I found myself responsible for all of it and in tremendous existential risk. And uh, that's really, you know, kind of what the story comes from in Lessons from the Edge. I really talk about that crisis. And really, it's not just to dwell on the crisis, 
but to really provide others with the benefit of the myriad of lessons I learned from being where most people hope they'd never get, which is staring over the edge of disaster. Um, You know, what's it like to deal with those kinds of situations and how do you get through it and how do you get out of it? Because when I started doing talks on this, I found that a lot more entrepreneurs than are comfortable talking about it are there or have been there. And it just takes somebody opening up a little bit really to get the dialogue going for some of the many of them to say, hey, I'm in that situation now. Can you share some thoughts with me on X or Y? And so I decided to write them down. Yeah, Vaughn, you know, I tell you, I've been there multiple times myself, you know, having run companies and and remember something that just happens on a random Tuesday. Um, I remember one time I was running our, uh, I ran an email marketing software um, company and we had thousands and thousands of clients that relied on us to get their email campaigns out. And we had uh, one client who did uh, something that caused a couple of our servers to end up getting blocked. And and so that caused a tremendous amount of grief because mm-hmm. then other clients aren't able to send their emails out. And then they're like, well, what am I doing with you? And next thing you know, you're freaking out trying to get this thing fixed and you don't sleep, you know, because literally the next week you could be out of business and you wonder yep. what's going to happen with your family and your home and all kinds of things. Um, and it is very, very difficult to, to deal with. So I have this um, this phrase I always use uh, that whatever happens at home affects work and what happens at work affects home. There's just Amen. one life. There's no yep. personal life. There's no work life. There's just life. <laughs> and you've right. got to, yeah. So you're at your kid's birthday party. You're freaking out about what's about to potentially happen to you. How did you get out of it? What did you do? What are the block and tackle things that got you to stave off the IRS and the bank at the same time? Yeah, great, great question. And and by the way, the landlord was after us. And and really, even within a few weeks of all of that, we actually had uh, the power company come to turn the lights off. And we actually managed to pay the bill and run down with a printed receipt from the internet to the guys and stop them from flipping the switch oh my moments before they were about to pull it down uh, mm-hmm. in the basement of the building we were in. You know, just, just real, uh, real high stress scenario. But here's here's the thing. I saw a TED talk one time uh, about a gentleman who'd led a group in Afghanistan that came over a hill and they got surprised by a group about four times their size uh, of enemy combatants that were shooting at them. And he said, the only reason we survived and all of us survived and we got through that is that I had trained my men that our first response to danger was not to react. It was to slow down. And uh, in in that time, I, I was definitely stressed out. But I didn't return phone calls from people who were demanding an instant answer on how I was going to solve everything. I gave myself a little bit of time to think. I took a long weekend uh, and I kind of chewed on like, what are my moves here? And, And I didn't get all the answers right away. I didn't have a weekend epiphany, but slowing down a little bit and it allowed me to not call people in a panic because listen, if, if you're behind with a vendor and you call them and they can hear warbling in your voice and bull crap and you know, they're they're not going to be inspired to go through the ride with you, right? But if they can hear a bit of calmness and you say, look, I, I'm in a challenging situation. I've got my hand full with a number of things. I'd love to prioritize you, but I can't right now. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's how we're working through it. I need you to buy me some time for this and trust the relationship that we've had for a long time. Um, listen, with, with many, it didn't work. They said, uh, you know, <laughs> they're like the, the Tridarians in Star Wars. That doesn't work on me. Only money, right? You know, and and mm-hmm. and so I get that and I respected it. But there were also a lot of folks who said, look, Vaughn, you've been working with us a long time. 
we're going to hang in here, but I need an update every two weeks. And I don't care what you can do. I need you to send me something by the end of the month so I can show my, so I can literally tell my manager, I'm starting to get payments out of these guys, right? Communication, very critical. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, A, it was slowing down. B, it was being transparent and humble. And that was really hard to do. It wasn't my nature. I was loaded with ego. This whole experience humbled me and taught me a lot about how to communicate with people in a very different way. Uh, but I had to call vendors and say something that I didn't want to because I wanted to be in the strong position of negotiating with them. I had to say, I need you. I need your help. And I had to call customers that were sensing that something was wrong and say, look, I need you to go through this with me. Uh, and it was amazing to me because I had never tried that because I didn't have a humble bone in my body that people responded and said, well, I could kind of tell you did, but if you didn't ask, I was about to dump you. Oh, <laughs> right? look at that. Just the power of asking. Right. The power and, of asking. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I think it was really the, uh, the approach of humility. Listen, every, you know, there is risk. Uh, not everybody is going to be decent to you if you tell them you need them. Right. Mm -hmm. But there are decent people out there and, and, um, Oh, you know, the, the old uh, how to win friends and influence people talks about the fact that people want to be needed. Hmm. And, and when I would tell my customers who had every right to leave me, knowing the challenges we were going through and risks we were facing, that I needed them, I had some who stepped up and said, look, we will pay you for the next six months worth of work. Oh, will wow. that help you? Right. You know, and and uh, and there were vendors who said things like, look, you know, I can't do anything about the fact that you're behind. I can't ship you any goods. Uh, but I will teach you how to game the system. If your average payments are under 30 days, like I won't name the company because I don't want to embarrass them and have anybody mm -hmm. track down which employee was dealing with us. But mm -hmm. one of the large vendors to the IT community said, everything that's in our system is about average days of payment. So if you make a $100,000 order and it goes for 90 days, but you make a bunch of $20 orders and you pay them all in five days, our system averages your invoices by the number of days it's taken you to pay. Not the you amount. And what well, I'm saying, right? And yeah, I was like, so, yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. So wait, wait, let me make sure I got this clear. Cause this is a fantastic uh, financial tip. You're saying that if you just break the orders down to smaller payments and you effectively create your own payment plan because you're paying for a smaller amount of goods uh, faster, they don't care about the dollar amount total as an, as the calculation for the average payment date, they just look at the yeah uh, speed. Yeah, now, of now, right, and look, a, a, you know, a finance manager who doesn't trust you is going to care about that number. Yeah. But if they trust you and they want to find a way to ship you the goods, yes. If we would order fifty mice and we ordered them all individually and we paid three quarters of those invoices because that's what we had on hand that we could give them, mm -hmm. but then we were ordering thirty thousand dollars worth of servers for a client the next day the fact that we knew we wouldn't be able to pay for those servers for 60 days, it wasn't pushing our average up above 30 days. So we were learning how to live in a, in a reality mm -hmm. where we were lucky if we could pay things in 90 to 120 days, but we mm -hmm. needed to manage the relationships. And, you know, and we found things out like, well, the light company would threaten lights off, uh, you know, 30 days. The truth is we could go pretty darn close to 90 days as long as we were communicating with them. Mm -hmm. And and so those are, you know, those are things that I'm not proud of having learned. But the reality, it's all about relationship. It's all about trust. And it's all about communication. And it's possible to get through what looks like the end, right? And, and the, the paper tiger of life is that it's always coming at you and saying, now you're dead. 
And, mm. and the way we push the paper tiger back is with facts, right? It's, you know, it, there's all, that's, that's what life is all about, a battle between untruth and truth. And, and the untruth is that if you make one step out of the bounds of normal, it's going to be all over for you and it's going to be a disaster and it's going to be the end. But having peered over that edge, uh, you know, think, think of the, uh, uh, the old picture of the frog halfway down the throat of the uh, pelican, but the two hands of the frog are out choking the neck of the pelican so that he can't swallow the frog, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and there's a never give up underneath of it. You know, there's always a branch over the edge of the cliff that you can grab onto. There's always a little plateau out there that you can land on. You know, there's always another way if you're determined and you're only going to have a shot at those things if you don't give up. And I, and I talk about that in the book. There's a whole section there where I really dig into this. But, you know, you either sacrifice your humility, you know, you, or I'm sorry, you either sacrifice your pride for the sake of your reputation or you'll actually lose both. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and so proud entrepreneurs are dangerous entrepreneurs and, and really experienced entrepreneurs lose that. And they recognize that we surf across the top of dangerous waves, but we need the help of lots of people and they need to be able to trust us that we're going to tell them when we're in trouble. And, and we need to be able to trust them that they'll help us. Yeah, I think that's really key is just, uh, you know, the, the communication and then being humble about things. Uh, not everything as glorified as, as social media channels portray them to be. That's right. Uh, life is pretty, uh, pretty up and down. And so, yeah, <laughs> you got to got to react. Um, you know, there's a, a, a lesson in your book uh, you call crisis capital. So it looks like we talked about a couple of things here because I think, you know, some entrepreneurs listening to this podcast uh, might be in a situation where they are they've got their back to the wall and they've got a rock about to crush them and they're trying to figure out how to financially maneuver their way around. So I love some of the, the ideas that you shared. Are there some other things um, that you would recommend? Yeah, some, some of the things that got us through that are atypical uh, and are still viable today. We discovered that there are some aggressive leasing companies, even in down markets who will, you know, you, and you may say, hey, a bank won't touch us. We're not going to be able to get this done. Yeah, sure, I can lease a copier, right? Well, I'm not suggesting you get a copier. But sometimes you look at something that the organization needs. And for us, we ran a data center. We had a lot of mission-critical customers in there. We couldn't afford to have outdated equipment in there, no, no matter what we were going through. And so there were times that we said, well, the only folks that are going to give us financing are these leasing companies to go buy a router from the vendor who we're on cutoff with, unless we can do COD. And, you know, we're juggling all these things. But we began to learn, because we were hanging over that edge, that leasing companies said, hey, you know, uh, we're willing to extend this lease to include labor for installation and implementation. And, mm -hmm. and we said, okay, so what if we're doing that ourselves? They said, well, what you've got to do is you've got to bundle it in and you've got to build a proposal uh, to get the whole thing done. So I'm, uh, you know, this is something that you've got to work out with your leasing vendor, but we were definitely at the point we were unbankable and we lived there for close to four five years. It was a tough time. Mm -hmm. uh, but we were able to get a handful of uh, facilities from leasing groups where we said, hey, let's spend our money that we needed to spend on new laptops and, and make this payroll. And let's go lease all of the laptops we needed. And let's get some cash to get the lights caught up uh, by building up that number in a way that the leasing company is okay with. And so one of the examples that was very creative and very legitimate is uh, you know we found laptops that were the right things for our development team, which is the part of the company I spun out now. 
um, that were about 2,500 bucks a piece, but we found that we could pick those up used from a law firm that was dropping uh, things at the one year mark, similarly equipped for about $1,300. Mm. But the leasing company was okay with fronting us $2,500 a piece for them since that was their new value, so mm-hmm. long as we could record all the serial. You know, and so things like this created chunks, uh, you know, liquidity for us that we're able to get us through. Another one is, you know, we kept paying those leasing vendors on time by just tying them to the checking account and, and making it something we couldn't say no to because we needed, you know, we needed our credit rating in some areas to be good since our vendors were struggling. And finally, we found secondary markets. Uh, again, I get into some detail in the book, but, you know, people have not heard of things like uh, asset-based lending uh, in the tech business, right? But, you know, folks who have inventory have heard of that, but folks uh, in that business will typically say, we don't know how to help a tech business. Well, that's not true. If you can get an outside valuation on intellectual property you've created in your business, that's an asset. And asset-based lenders will take risks that traditional lenders won't. Uh, There's also a secondary market, uh, you know, and, and a lot of what's developed now in terms of crowdfunding um, is is really an alternative to that, but but again, that can be difficult. It can be hard to raise larger numbers in there, or there are some people that have been very successful with it. But uh, I'll name one organization here. There's a company I don't even know if they're still in business, but uh, it was called Credibility Capital, and uh, they were they were basically fronting for uh, you know private investors who are looking for returns they couldn't get out of a struggling market. And so where the bank might have given us a loan that might have been 6 or 7%, these guys were 14 or 15%. And, you know, I write in the book that, you know, you got to get over your Wall Street Journal prime rate reading self sometimes when your chips are down and say, what's the difference to pay 8 or 9% more if the alternative is going out of business? If you really believe in yourself and this business is going to be worth millions of dollars someday and you're just in the dip, do what you got to do. I'm not a fan of debt and especially unnecessary debt. Uh, but when the debt is necessary or an appropriate tool, because you can turn the business around, but you're in survival mode, you got to remember, you trade your Rolex for a hundred foot rope in a minute if you were hanging on a branch on the side of the cliff. Yeah. Right? I mean, yeah. you got to set your priorities when you're in a crisis. You really do. Right. Yeah. You know, one thing that, that, well, thank you for sharing some of these uh, financial tips on how to how to get through. Um, one thing I didn't hear you say was equity. So did you give up any equity uh, as part of um, a way to finance some of your debt? Yes. Uh, you know, during that same time, uh, I took on an investor in the software company that I was growing in kind of the belly of the other one. And if I hadn't done that, it wouldn't have survived. And uh, similarly, they got a very good deal because I was in crisis mode. And mm. and so I wasn't really growing the business. I was trying to keep it from going out of business. And so that's not the best time to raise capital. Uh, but, you know, I very much appreciate the fact that there are folks out there who are willing to take a chance and expect a premium, uh, the same mm. as you would if you were the guy writing the check. <laughs> you know, if you see there's some risk on this thing, you're looking to get a little bit of a better deal. And and again, in the long run, by the time I got to sell the business, I didn't regret, uh, you know, the first business into the second one. But by the time I got to sell that business, I didn't regret any of the investors that I had taken on. In fact, I was delighted to see them make a, a significant return 
uh, off of those investments because they took a big chance at me in a difficult time. I, you know, and I agree with that sentiment so wholeheartedly. I think a lot of uh, times entrepreneurs will get started and they, I'm not going to say they're like frustrated with their investors. In some cases they are, but I like it when my investors make a good chunk of money because that means that, you know, I did something right. They took a chance on me and yes, they should be rewarded for, uh, mm -hmm. for believing in, in what I've done. I remember my very first company, um, the 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 primary investor made a lot of money on it and uh and it was good you know i mean it made, made it meant i made some money too so that's, that's right yeah. right well, listen, I, I was a kid born of modest means my father was a broke preacher in new jersey who moved down to join a different church in maryland that's how i ended up in maryland mm -hmm. and the church split like the weekend after we showed up and he was left without a job and had no savings mm -hmm. and you know i went i mean i grew up a modest kid really and that's putting it nicely right um so so to have investors take a chance on giving me the opportunity like my children are going to be you know and, and they are they're growing up in a very different situation than i grew up in but part of that is because other people were willing to take a risk on me right shared risk shared reward and and i often talk about the idea that listen as an entrepreneur we it's funny you you think about the power of, of motivating somebody with equity uh, if you don't believe that it could work, like if you, if you think I want to bring this person in, but I don't want to give them equity, I want to try to figure out how not to do that. When you're when you're in a startup, that's a crazy decision, and I felt that way, and I wish I hadn't because I could have made the company go better and faster uh, if I'd had a different attitude in the beginning. You kind of want that whole pie plate, and I've now become convinced that you have two choices as an entrepreneur, really, and it doesn't mean that there aren't some people who can self fund something all the way through, but you can either own the whole damn pie plate. Or you can have part of it and have some pie in it. <laughs> right? and, and people tend to forget yeah, the pie. important yeah. thing is having the pie in the plate, right? Yeah. <laughs> having the pie in the plate, I think, is a pretty critical component. Uh, yeah, that's, um, that is a really valuable lesson also. Uh, Vaughn, there's lots of really useful lessons in your book, and I know we won't have time to go through all of them in your podcast. I'd love for people to be able to get the book if they'd like to uh, take a look at it. Could you maybe just pop that up on the screen real quick? Yeah, you, you just mentioned you a little bit about the book. It's on Amazon. It's uh, Lessons from the Edge of Business Disaster. Uh, you know, and a subtitle under there, A Leader's Guide to Survival and Recovery. Mm -hmm. um, it's pretty easy to find. If you search for lessons from the edge, there's a political book out that's going to come up above me, but it'll usually come up second or third yeah. uh, in there as well. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a couple of uh, really key things I think that you talk about in the book, and that is your leadership team, because if you don't have the right people on board, oh, that's it. That's the end of the story. And then setting up your corporate culture. So I want to just, as we close out, just want to talk about one other chapter in your book, and that is what is corporate culture and what happens if you lose it, you lose your company. Can you just share some some lessons about your corporate culture, what that meant to you? Was it? How did you build it? Yeah, you bet, Raj. And and uh, it's funny, even the way you asked the question, I can tell you've been through the wrong side of that with me. When you've got the wrong people in the in the in the seats, you know, it's it's tough. What I began to and I had an interesting uh, ride, in that I built two companies that ran in the same office. Uh, my systems company was the larger and much stronger of the two, and I was kind of building this fledgling software company that was just barely kind of covering its own costs in the background. But that was fine because I was really excited we were building. We had a long-term plan of building the company. And so in my big company, in the managed services company, if I had an empty chair, we had a, you know, a wartime budget. We needed to go find the very best we could get, and we needed to get them in that chair fast and get them billing customers. 
And so our recruiting strategy was to look for skills first and, and everything else a distant second and how quick could they start. And I remember times that we would even pick the second best candidate because they could start immediately mm. without contemplating why are they on the bench when there's hardly anybody out there, right? And, and in the other company, because I really didn't have a lot of resources and it was this fledgling effort in the background, I only hired people when I stumbled across somebody who was so obviously a good fit that I thought we got to risk going out of business to get this guy or gal in here. And, and so what happened is on one team, I had a mercenary culture. I had people who were brought in because Vaughn's managed services company is, you know, the, one of the better companies in the area to work for in my skill field. I've got the skills and the pay is right. And, uh, you know, and we didn't do a lot together. And on the other side of the company, I was hiring people because somebody knew them and said, Hey, I've got this friend who might turn out to be available. Um, what did that mean? It meant that we were bringing people in who had common interests, who already had a means by which to relate to each other. Um, and so as I watched those two Petri dishes grow, I had one culture where if something went wrong, uh, everybody was pointing their fingers at each other. Nobody would take blame. Um, nobody would take ownership of problems. In fact, everybody would escalate. I owned everything. Anything that went wrong just worked its way up to me, right? And, yeah. and in the other company, we had a difficult period uh, one year where uh, we were really short on funds. And the only way I could see clear to not lay anybody off until we got to another big renewal uh, you know, point, which was potentially five months away, was to cut everybody's pay by 20% until we got there. And uh, when I did that, uh, half of that other team with that healthy culture, half the other team, I, I told them all they could come in four days a week since I was only paying them for 80%. But half the team came in the fifth day anyway and said, mm -hmm. you know, why would I want to risk this company falling apart, you know, just to get an extra day off? Yeah. And, and I thought, what a remarkable thing, right? Nobody left. People did ask from time to time, but we didn't get a lot of questions. People just said, hey, we trust you guys. We'll get through this. And it was really remarkable because during that same period of time, the other company was in a much different financial position. I was able to give out raises that were above market and I had infighting and difficulty. And then I had this cohesive team and it was a wake up call for me as an entrepreneur that building a team is not about building a basket full of skills and looking for what's missing and filling it. It's about building a group of people who are cohesive, who work as a team, and the culture, and we put up on our wall, it's, you know, passion, humility, teamwork, and integrity. And, uh, you know, the passion is because we all loved what we did. We believed that our product made a difference, right? The humility was this way that we would approach each other, that we hold each other accountable in a teamwork environment. But they would come and say, hey, I'm not sure I'm right, but I'm concerned that what you're doing with this customer might not be the right thing. You know, that was that combination of teamwork and humility in there. And the integrity was the idea that, look, if you think somebody's doing the right thing, you can't just bite your tongue and go home, complain to your spouse. You've got to tell them. And, and so all, I looked at all, and those things were not things we put up on the wall and said, we hope to aspire to this. They were things that our team themselves actually identified as what made up the core components of our culture. And so I looked at the other team and said, we had things up on the wall that we said we aspired to, but there was no culture. And by the way, um, you know, I wrestled with that the whole time. It felt like it was a constant fight to try to keep the company together and, and keep people working together and focusing on the mission out there. And then I had this other low maintenance team that just did the right thing because they cared. 
And it taught me as an entrepreneur that I hadn't valued the culture and therefore I was constantly fighting to keep it in existence. Mm. And the one where I'd inherited a good culture that almost happened by accident, I call it by the grace of God, right? Uh, you know, I inherited this culture and all I had to do was keep it from getting blown up and it solved all kinds of problems for me. And mm -hmm. so I saw the quote one time from uh, one of the books I read, you know, culture eats strategy. And, yeah. and the first time I read that, I thought that's stupid. That's just somebody trying to, you know, come up with a clever line. But when I contemplated over a couple of weeks, what I'd watched during that period, I realized it was true uh, that, that I had a strategy for growing one business and hiring great people, but it was, it was creating a lot of work for me as an entrepreneur. It was painful. It was like adult daycare. <laughs> in the other organization, yeah. I know you know that feeling. And yeah. in the other organization, I had this cohesive team that really enjoyed each other's company. And so I don't care what it is. I look back all the way to my earliest job. Uh, I worked at a rental center as a kid. And I remember that I didn't know much about football. I was kind of nerdy. I almost got my man card taken away by talking about the 70-yard line. And guys, <laughs> there's no 70-yard line. What are you talking about? You know, but, but, but these guys all loved football, and they would rib each other over their favorite games. They worked hard. They got along. They laughed. They all, you know, they would clean that place up because they wanted to get out in time for Monday night football, right? I didn't mm -hmm. understand the energy in that place on Monday, but it was that they had something in common that brought them the ability to relate in a dynamic that was greater than just the tasks. Yeah. And I really began to define culture that way, right? Community is what we have in common that brings us unity. If you shove those two words together, you end up with community. It's finding people and allowing them to naturally coalesce over, you know, whether it's the great way they treat each other, whether it's a bunch of guys and gals that are into a certain kind of music. It doesn't mean you have to get a hegemony where everybody thinks the same way, but it's, it's allowing those sort of common circles to build so that people have relationships that are more meaningful than transactional. Yeah, and I think one of the big other things that you um, you alluded to in your, your comments are that you care. And I, I think people will go miles for you if they know you care. Mm -hmm. uh, and that makes all the difference in the world. I know in, in my teams, I've been able to retain people uh, in the same company 10, 12 years, you know, all the way up and through through the exits of the company because they knew we cared and we um, we wanted to foster that culture. So Vaughn, thank you again. I love all of the other topics in your book. I'd love for people to take a look at it. So thanks again for joining me on today's podcast. Um, how can people get a hold of you if they want to reach you? Yeah, sure. I'm easy to find on LinkedIn. Uh, my first name is V-A-U-G-H-N, last name T-H-U-R-M-A-N. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I work Today, I'm the founder and CEO for uh, High Gear, which is a software company focused on uh, empowering business analysts and people who think like them to build sophisticated enterprise-grade workflow solutions. So highgear.com, uh, just like it sounds, is pretty easy to find, and uh, I'm pretty easy to find out there as well. And I'll uh, typically always accept connections and always glad to uh, share email with folks. Uh, and communicate. And if somebody wants to email me as well, I'll share that on here. It's my first name is Vaughn, V-A-U-G-H-N dot Thurman, T-H-U-R-M-A-N at highgear.com. All one word, eight letters, highgear.com. All right. Thank you very much, Vaughn, for joining me and uh, for sharing your wonderful well, lessons about entrepreneurship. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed both the pre-conversation and this one, Raj, and would love to learn more about your story. And thanks for doing this podcast. All right. Thank you.